I am thrilled with today's guest, one of the rising stars, fast rising stars in the Democratic Party, Congressman Richie Torres, who represents the 15th Congressional District, uh, has been one of the bravest and most outspoken voices for Israel even before October 7th and certainly since. And uh, welcome to the show, sir. It's an honor to be here. So tell me, give me the latest um just from your point of view, or how are things going over there? Obviously, uh, we're deep in the midst of it, and Israel continues um, their offensive to uh, root out all of Hamas, and it's going to be a long slog. What's your take on where the state of things are? Is Look, the war, the war is a tragedy. Uh, it's a tragedy for both Israelis and Palestinians. Um, but Israel has rightly concluded that it has no choice but to remove Hamas from power which is going to be an enormously complicated undertaking. Um, you know, Israel's made progress in the north, but it's engaged in intense combat with Hamas in Han Yunus. And of course, there's eventually going to be more combat near the Rafah border. So Israel's making progress, but I'm under no illusion that this is going to be a short and simple war. Uh, you know, Gaza is a labyrinth of terror tunnels and booby trap buildings and combatants camouflaged as civilians. And, and those are enormously complicated conditions under which to prosecute a defensive war. Uh, and so I, I suspect there's gonna be a long counterinsurgency campaign that could persist for months, if not years. Uh, I'm not convinced that this is a war that's gonna end anytime soon. I agree. You know, you, uh, you've been very outspoken and, and you're a progressive, uh, but still a moderate. Uh, there's no way to, I think, paint more of a uh, challenge to the Republican Party versus you and the squad and you, the Democratic Socialists of America and whatnot. But both, if I take AOC, she's a rising star also. But you guys are in very, very, very different places. Talk to me about that. Look, the the, the Democratic Party is a big tent. Um, you, you know, it's been said that you know, I'm not a member of the Democratic Party. I'm, I'm not a member of an organized political party. I'm a Democrat. And, uh, <laughs> you know, the Republican Party has become a cult of personality around Donald Trump. It has become more of a monolith, uh, whereas the Democratic Party is a broad coalition that ranges from Bernie Sanders to Joe Manchin. Uh, and so there's going to be it's natural to have ideological diversity in a big tent party like the Democratic Party. Um, but there are. Look, I think on most issues, I'm in agreement with colleagues who are to my left. But there is a fundamental struggle for the soul of the party on the subject of Israel. Uh, there is a divide between traditional Democrats and Democratic Socialists. And Israel Israel has become something of a litmus test. Are you – what was your reaction? I, I'm a Jew, so uh, – and you're not Jewish, but you've been profoundly uh, connected to Israel since your visit in 2015 – what was your reaction to what, and I've talked about this many times on the air, and many other have, that somehow the killing and the, 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 the attack on Jews falls into a different space for people, that instead of absolute condemnation in this country, it was quite the opposite. There was uh, marches for Hamas and, and, and mar from the river to the sea, even some of your, your colleagues, you, you were one of the 22 that censured Tlaib. And people ask me all the time, and my answer is some people think Jews have it coming to them for some reason, that there is this weird space that Jews occupy that 
uh, on the one hand, an incredibly persecuted, that, that Noah Tishby said it best, that it's, it's racism from above and beyond. It's, it's oh, well, they own the banks and they, they own the media. Yet at the same time, they're the lowest vermin on earth. And you get it from both sides. Try and explain it to me. Well, the simple explanation is anti-Semitism, which has a long and ugly history. Um, and anti-Semitism is like a cancer that goes into remission, but it never quite disappears. It, it, it rears its ugly head at various points in history. Um, I'm convinced that we have institutions, academia, social media, that are increasingly indoctrinating the next generation with a hatred for Israel that is so virulent and so fanatical that it makes them indifferent to the loss of Jewish life, to the murder of Jewish life. You know, you had a professor at Cornell University who publicly said that he was exhilarated mm-hmm. by the cold-blooded murder of Israeli children and civilians. He was exhilarated by the butchery of Israeli babies. And in my view, if you have an ideology that causes you to justify or even glorify terrorism and barbarism, then there's something profoundly wrong with your ideology. It's so many young people, and to your point, and this is a function of social media and a function of our academic institutions, grew up in a very simple equation of oppressed and oppressor. Yeah. That, you know, there, there's there's the, the wealthier or the lighter skinned versus the less uh, economically fortunate and darker skinned and that there's this if well, you can look at an equation I Bill Maher kind of I, I said it better articulated than I did is it that simple I see it as a gross distortion of reality um, how do you how do you mean there's an ideology that divides the world into oppressor versus oppressed powerful versus powerless white versus black colonizer versus colonized And there are people who view Israel as the oppressor, who can do no right, and who view Hamas as the oppressed, who can do no wrong. And that's the distorting lens through which the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is seen. And I would argue that morality is based on what you do, right? If you're butchering babies, that is intrinsically evil, regardless of your place in the power hierarchy. And, 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 and I feel like what we've seen among academics and activists is the substitution of an anti-Israel ideology for moral common sense. You know, I take, and we saw that at the congressional hearings. You know, if, if, you know, I represent the Bronx. If you asked the average Bronxite, is calling for a genocide of Jews a form of harassment? The average Bronxite would tell you, of course. Right. But if you ask an academic is calling for a genocide against Jews harassment. And an academic will tell you, well, it's context dependent. Yeah. And so it seems to me that the loss of moral common sense and moral clarity is not a bug, but a feature of what higher education has become. What people are missing in this country, and I've tried to stress, because sometimes you say anti-Semitism and <clears throat> the killing and the hatred of Jews and doesn't register with people. But what I've tried to say many, many times is that you have to understand with Hamas, these are jihadists. They're no different than ISIS. They are no different than the, the people that took down the towers. And it's not only just about Jews, it's about anti-Western civilization, anti-humanity, that, that basically the jihadists in their world 
everybody needs to be an extremist Muslim. If not, you should be killed and you go to, you go to heaven for killing. And that if we live next door to them and they had the access to do in Israel, they would do the same thing to New Jersey. Look, I, I, I agree with you. Um, the, the Hamas exists to murder Jews in Israel. It, it actively seeks the destruction of Israel as a Jewish state. And Hamas has publicly said that October 7th was not a one-time event. It was just a dress rehearsal. Yeah. There will be a second and a third and a fourth until the Jewish state itself is annihilated. Uh, and we ignore the genocidal mission of Hamas at our own peril. So what do you say to people and many of your colleagues and many in this country who say cease fire, because that's always my explanation, but what do you do if your neighbor tells you they've already killed one of your children and they're going to keep killing until they kill all? How, how, do you, how does somebody justify the ceasefire argument against that? Look, there's, there's no greater supporter of an unconditional immediate ceasefire than Hamas. Yeah. Right? Hamas supports an immediate unconditional ceasefire, not because it has any concern for Palestinian life, which it happily uses as a human shield. Hamas supports an unconditional ceasefire because an unconditional ceasefire would enable Hamas to remain in power, rearm, regroup, and launch even deadlier terrorist attacks than the atrocities of October 7th. And Hamas has said as much. Uh, and so if you live Outside Israel, if you live in the ivory towers of the United States, then you have the luxury of telling Israel that you have to coexist with a genocidal terror organization that seeks to murder you and your people. Uh, that's that's a luxury belief that American activists can hold. Yeah, Israel has no such luxury. Like the the obligation of every nation state, including the Jewish nation state, is to protect its people. When I became a member of Congress and took an oath, I took an oath to defend the people of the United States. That's the highest and most solemn obligation of every nation state. What frightens me, and it's not talked about enough, you know, I unfortunately, I don't say unfortunately, I, I saw the 47-minute film, uh, which was basically just... GoPro footage of the terrorists actually committing the, these these horrific barbaric deeds, and two things stuck with me was the glee on the face of the terrorists, but also the glee. And a lot of people have seen this before. Part of the footage is they were driving a, a, a an Israeli corpse through um, Gaza, the cheering of the Gazans, and when you do the math and say, you know. Hamas has been in power since 2008, so we're talking about 15, 16 years, and we know they teach in school the hatred and the killing of, of Jews and Israeli. What percent of Gazans are radicalized at this point? Whether it's their fault or not, just if you do that, and that's what frightens me, that sometimes people think, well, there's Hamas and there's like 10,000 Hamas guys, and then the innocent, all the innocent civilians, and certainly there are many innocent civilians, but a bit large part of Gazans at this point are radicalized. But the radicalization is not only unfolding because of Hamas, it's unfolding also because of institutions like UNRWA, which is subsidized by U.S. dollars. Uh, Explain that to my audience. Explain that to the audience. Yeah, so the United Nations Refugee Works Agency um, you know, provides services like education in the Gaza Strip, and much of what passes for education 
is anti-Semitic indoctrination. Uh, so there has been a radicalization of many Palestinians in, in the Gaza Strip. And, you know, there's a culture of martyrdom. You know, the murder of Jews is not, you know, dying in the service of murdering Jews is not seen as something tragic. It's seen as something heroic. Um, you know, the Palestinian Authority in the West Bank actually pays the families of martyrs who die in the service of murdering Jews. Uh, so there, you know, the culture of, of martyrdom is appears to be deeply embedded in Palestinian society. I touched on this earlier that you went to Israel uh, when you were, I guess, 26, 27 years old, 25, and how it kind of changed you and you had a connection. Talk to talk about that. So when I entered the city council, um, you know, I had no knowledge of Israel. I had no passion for the subject. Um, and then I was invited by the Jewish Community Relations Council to go on a delegation to Israel. It was the first time I had an opportunity to travel abroad. And the experience was one of the most formative and transformative in my life. Um, you know, I went to Yad Vashem, which is the Holocaust Museum. I went to the Masada, you know, which was the scene of the infamous mass suicide of sure. Jews to escape enslavement at the hands of the Roman Empire. And, and one of the most profound experiences was going to Stayrote. I remember speaking to the local mayor of Stayrote, who said to me that the majority of his children struggle with post-traumatic stress because his family lives under the threat of relentless rocket fire from Hamas. And I remember seeing bus stops doubling as bomb shelters. And I imagined to myself, you know, imagine the sheer trauma of a five-year-old who's seeking refuge in a bomb shelter while rockets are being fired and sirens are going off and adults are panicking. You know, I represent the Bronx where I have constituents who live in fear of bullets, but no one in the United States lives in fear of rockets. No one in the United States worries that Canada and Mexico are gonna fire rockets into American homes and American communities. And so I came to realize early on that Israel faces a level of volatility and insecurity that has no equivalent. None in the American experience. And, you know, if you're going to judge Israel, I have one piece of advice, go to Israel. Go to Israel, yeah. Experience it firsthand. Speak to both Israelis and Palestinians. Speak to both Israeli Jews and Israeli Arabs. Go to a place like Stayrote. See the facts on the ground with your own eyes. And you will come to realize that Israel is infinitely more complicated than the caricature that percolates on social media. I just what's you mentioned going there. I just was speaking to someone who lives in Tel Aviv, and they said it's different now post October seventh. It's it it really there is a pall over the country, and people don't go out. You know, Tel Aviv is such a celebratory city. Uh, I don't want to call it a party city, but I mean it's great young energy, and that's been tremendously, tremendously sucked out. And hopefully, we'll come back. Look, I mean, Israel's been transformed both psychologically and physically. Um, it's psychologically transformed because it's a country struggling with post-traumatic stress from October 7th, which is going to linger for the foreseeable future. Uh, and it's been transformed physically because much of Israel has become uninhabitable. You know, Hamas has rendered southern Israel uninhabitable and Hezbollah has rendered um, northern Israel uninhabitable. There are hundreds of thousands of Israelis who have become exiles in their own country because of the terror threats that surround Israel. 
Let's just shift to, to some U.S. politics for a second. Something that's troubling me about the Democratic Party is because the Democratic Party, we you touched on this earlier, is a big tent. And part of that big tent has always been the youth vote. And somehow, I don't know if it's because of Biden's age. I don't know if it's because some of the issues we've been talking about on social media. The youth is 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 certainly not a sticky group for the Democrats right now, and that's frightening. What's the problem with young? Not the problem with young people. Why are young people not as automatically connected to the Democratic Party as they used to be? And candidly, they still should be based on issues. Um, I, I see three challenges. Um, uh, first, there's a general concern about the president's age. Yeah, right? very the much. Republicans so. have effectively driven home the narrative that President Biden is too old to run for re-election. And, and it has every, person, every person I talk to, age, regardless of their age, is feeling that. And that's, that's just, that's a real reality the Democrats have to deal with. You know, regardless of the merit of the narrative, it has become deeply ingrained in the American mind. And it is a problem that President Biden cannot solve because he's not going to get any younger. Uh, so that's one challenge. Uh, the, the second challenge is, you know, we have forgotten the extent to which inflation Amen. is politically damaging. Yeah, um, I, I'm convinced that there's a lack of voter enthusiasm among voters of color because of inflation. Yes. Because if you're a black or brown person from the South Bronx and you're seeing higher gas prices or higher grocery stores, it is deeply damaging. Um, uh, and, and even though the economy is improving on paper, it has not improved to an extent that people can feel it palpably on the ground. Yeah. And so that's a second challenge we face. And, I, and the third challenge is among young people is, yes, there is anti-Israel sentiment, but more than anti-Israel sentiment, there is anti-war sentiment. Uh, I, I feel like young people are against U.S. engagement in Ukraine, U.S. engagement yeah. in Israel. And, you know, one explanation is that if you're a millennial who lived through the failures in Afghanistan and Iraq, you're deeply scarred by American interventionism. You've lost faith in your government. Yeah. And, and there is rising isolationism, not only among young people, but among the left and the right. Uh, that the notion of America as the leader of the free world, as the global police, you know, that notion has lost support among growing numbers of American people, particularly young people. And I feel like that's part of the dynamics that's driving um, the loss of support among youth. I'm curious, that a major issue for Biden and a major issue for the country is immigration. And, and New York City, we're, we're feeling it, we're seeing what's happening. I'm curious, you represent in Bronx and overwhelmingly uh, people of color and yeah. uh, economically challenged people. What is their view on what's happening with the border? I know there's not one collective view, but if you were going to kind of sum up your constituency, you've got because the the, the mindset is there's an, an interesting mindset of that people who've struggled in this country and have come in and are going through it that there's for the new people coming in not going through that there is a uh, a resistance an understandable one. You, you know there is a tendency to stereotype Latinos as a single issue constituency. Mm -hmm. uh, as, as a constituency that's primarily or almost exclusively concerned with immigration. Uh, that's incompatible with what I've seen in my district. Um, I get the sense that Latinos are no different 
from any other constituency. Well, I'm asking you, so what's the, your constituency, how are they feeling about what's going on? So I think their principal concerns are public safety and the economy. Yeah. Um, and there's a widespread perception in New York, including in my district, that the wave of migration is a crisis that has put immense strain on the shelter and safety net of New York City, and that the status quo is un unsustainable and, and needs to be resolved. Now, how we resolve it, there's no monolithic view on the solution, but there seems to be a widely shared belief among Latinos and among people in general that the crisis is unsustainable and that it's that's, put enormous strain on That's my biggest concern is, and when I remember seeing a, a cover of, it was either the Post or the News, that Eric Adams has got to take a billion dollars out of the budget to house immigrants and he's going to fire cops and fire teachers. That's a message that cuts across every demographic. Look, I, I think it's, it's, you know, we can debate how to resolve, how to fix our broken immigration system, but I see no value in denying that it's broken. Now, having said that, I believe the Republicans are more interested in demagoguing the issue of immigration. Well, of course they are. I mean, they're, basically, there is the, the, what the average person doesn't understand is that there is the toughest immigration bill on the table right now, and the Republicans are just blocking it because they want that political issue. They're not interested in solving the problem. You know, Senate Republicans and Senate Dems have brokered a compromise only for it to be immediately rejected by Speaker Johnson and House Republicans. So the House Republicans you know, are more interested in grandstanding than governing. So if I put you on a, on a council right now uh, with, for the Democrats and for Biden for reelecting him in 2024, what do you think the message should be? I know you're not a marketer by nature, but you're certainly a, a bright person with great communicative skills. Um, what do you think the message should be? I'm not and that's a million dollar that's a billion dollar question. If you had the answer to that, you'd probably be president of the United States next president. And I, even as an expert, don't have the answer for that. So I'm just I would love your perspective. Yeah, I'm not clear that we look, I, I would recommend that we focus on bread and butter concerns. Yeah. Uh, and we do have achievements like capping the price of insulin at $35 a month. That is an example of a policy that commands support both from the base and from the center, from the swing voters. Um but ultimately, I'm not convinced that we have a messaging problem, right? I think we have a reality problem. <laughs> and like no amount of messaging is going to persuade people there are no issues with the immigration system. But the reality, there is a perception problem beyond a reality problem because I could give a 15-minute speech about an amazing job Joe Biden's done. More legislative victories, uh, the economy, not for everybody, but for many people is strong. Inflation is softening. Uh, he's done a great job in Ukraine. He's done a great job on Israel. People are not giving him marks for that. So there's both a reality and a perception problem. Oh, no, I, I feel like President Biden has been one of the most productive and, by, and productively bipartisan presidents. Yes. In, in recent memory. Um, but, but, but the reality is that people continue to feel the impact of inflation. I'm not convinced that messaging is going to solve that problem. We're going to have to solve that problem yeah. at the level of public policy and governing. Uh, we're going to have to fix our immigration system at the level of public policy and governing. I'm not, you know, I think there's this notion in Washington, D.C. that we're one message away from solving every political problem. I'm not convinced there's a messaging solution to every problem. You bring up a great point. Hey, Congressman Torres, I promise that you and your people, I'll keep this another 30 minutes and we just we're heading on that. So I want to thank you. Keep up the great work. You are a brave young voice and uh, it was a privilege to talk to you. Absolutely. Take care.